Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. This is Mark Blythe at the Road Centre. On April the 11th, AlphaChat held a live recording in a DC bar called Penn Social. They did this during the annual meetings of the IMF and World Bank. Sadly, I wasn't able to make it, so Brendan Greeley of Alphaville hosted it without me. I heard it was a great evening, and thanks to all the DC Alpha Chat listeners who came out for a drink. A bit of setup for this episode. Brendan handed out jargon bells to the guests and the audience to keep them honest and make sure that they speak in plain English. You'll hear the name Felix a lot. He was our most enthusiastic bell ringer, Felix Salmon. He writes an economics newsletter for Axios, and he happened to be in the audience. Never was there a more perfect marriage of worker and tool than Felix and his bell. Here's Brendan. So on stage with me uh, on the far right is uh, Raghuram Rajan. He uh, teaches finance at uh, Chicago Booth School of Business. Uh, he was also the governor of the Reserve Bank of India uh, and uh, the chief economist of the IMF. Most of the people in this room have heard of him. Um, but I will tell you, uh, he did me a great kindness when he had no reason to, which is many, many years ago, the first magazine article I wrote for Business Week. I called a ton of economists. I was brand new to the beat. One of them responded and was willing to go on the record. So I, I know Raghuram Rajan is somebody who did me a great kindness when he had no reason to. Um, Ashley Putnam in the middle is uh, um, also a very kind person. Um, <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Certain. Um, but she's the director of the Economic Growth and Mobility Project at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. And she comes to the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia uh, from New York City, uh, where she was a policy uh, advisor uh, in the office of the New York City mayor. Um, so why are the two of them on stage uh, together tonight, other than that they are kind people and I asked them to? So they're both central bankers of a type who have arrived at the same conclusion, which is that community is important. We're going to define what we mean by community. We're going to get there, I promise. Um, but there's a paper that came out uh, about a year ago now by uh, an economist named Raj Chetty uh, at Harvard. And he basically looked at uh, what happens to children from poor families, depending on what zip code they grow up in. And it turns out that the neighborhood that you grow up in, the community that you grow up, up in, has tremendous consequences for you later in life. So when they grow up, uh, it is the community that they grow up in, that zip code, that area, that census code, actually, um, that determines uh, whether or not they're employed, uh, how healthy they are, a number of different outcomes. So it turns out that um, poor children in bad neighborhoods uh, grow up to have worse outcomes than poor children in good neighborhoods, which leads to a bunch of questions. What are good neighborhoods and what are bad neighborhoods? There is a line in that paper which made everybody's heads explode, which is that access to employment, the ability to have a job, had no bearing on the outcome whatsoever, right? And this is not the way we're used to thinking about solving problems. All of the policies, at least in the U.S., that we have uh, to help people are designed around creating jobs, right? From both sides, right? We can talk about uh, improving, uh, you know, market competition to, 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 to create more jobs. That's, we're not even going to get into that, right? Thank you, though. Um, I was ready. I was ready. <laughs> you were ready. You were waiting. You could hear it, all right? Um, but, you know, this, had, this changes the way we have to think uh, about 
policies. Um, because for a long time, we could look at the unemployment rate and we could say 3.8% or 3.9%. Now, everybody's doing great. There are no problems. Um, but of course, that's not what's happening. So um, I'm going to start, Raghu, with you. Um, you are a central banker who just wrote a book about community. So how did you arrive at the conclusion that that was what was important? Well, I, I was an academic before I became a central banker, so part of it was I was, uh, was curious about other things than monetary policy. Uh, but, but really, uh, I think uh, two things. One, I wondered why in, in an environment of relative plenty, as you said, unemployment rate is 3.7%. Inflation is at you know, barely touching two. The misery index jargon is uh, is the unemployment rate plus the inflation rate, which was huge in 1980, really low now, but people weren't so anxious in 1980. They were anxious, but but uh, seemingly not as anxious as they are now. Why is it when, when growth is pretty good, you know, it's not great, but it's good, uh, unemployment low, inflation low, people are really anxious. So that's that's one of the things that took me to this uh, this issue that we can't look at aggregates anymore. We have, okay, we can't look at overall, <laughs> overall, <laughs> we can't look at overall measures, countrywide measures anymore. We have to delve deeper to understand why people are anxious. And the belief always was, well, if people are anxious in a local area, they can just pull up stakes and move. And one of the things we've uh, learned is people don't move that much. They, they move far less now than they used to. And of course, Raj Shetty's work, though some of what I guess we've all been thinking about precedes that, his was just confirmation that this matters, that this in fact matters economically. So how does this piece of it, the community that you grew up in, fit into the broader picture of uh, capitalism? I really started this, this project by trying to say capitalism is much richer and goes far beyond just free and unfettered markets, which is all what you think capitalism is about if you listen to some people from Chicago. But there's a lot more to it. <laughs> there's a lot more to it than, than just that. And, and I wanted to build out the richness. And as I, as I started thinking about the richness, the community became important as a big piece of that richness. So. Um Ashley, you came from a different direction, but arrived in the same place, which yep. is that uh, traditionally the work of a central bank is to raise or lower the cost of capital to sort of think about how to make uh, borrowing more expensive or less expensive. I can see. I, I, I mean, but that was totally reasonable, folks. Um, but that's not the work you do right. uh, at the Philly Fed. So um, take the opposite approach from what Raghu just said. So sort of how did you how did you go from somebody working for the mayor's office to figure out employment to somebody thinking about community at a central bank? Yeah. And this is actually one of my very favorite questions to answer. So first, as a, a member of the Federal Reserve Bank, if you have ever seen any of us present, I get to start with the standard Fed disclaimer, which is, right, exciting. And that, that's jargon. We can get a bell for that. So the, my views expressed today are mine alone and do not represent the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia or the Federal Reserve System. Yeah, you did Yay! it. Okay. Now I can say anything. Um, so I am not an economist, and I think uh, that's an important disclaimer as we have this conversation, but I think it's also something I have found fascinating 
two years ago, if you had asked me if the Federal Reserve Bank worked on this, I actually might not have known the answer. Um, and I think this is really fascinating that this is something that's happening in, from two people who have been in central banking situations where I would say situations. I'm not a central banker in, in some ways, but, um, you know, we really started to think about community. I will say it's been in existence at the Federal Reserve Bank for several decades. Right. So the community development function at the Fed has existed since the late 1970s um, in many ways because of the Community Reinvestment Act and some concerns. We go. Um, I don't have a jargon-free way to say that. Um, and concerns about place, right? And that places were not necessarily getting the same access to capital or to opportunity. I think we've seen some shifts in community development at the Federal Reserve Bank over periods of time. And my work and the project I lead is a function of that. Um, and that is really essentially, we've started to ask some really fundamental questions about economic growth and economic mobility that economic resilience is really important to community? I'm gonna, no, I'm going to jump on economic mobility. It's basically okay. the ability to move beyond your economic situation. If you, right. were, uh, if you were born poor, do you have a chance to become rich? And just as important, if you were born rich, do you have a chance to become poor in case you, you know, don't do anything? Right. And, and the Raj Chetty study is a perfect example of that, right? He was measuring what is the probability, depending on where you were born, that you can start in the bottom quintile and end up in that top quintile, right? And these are, you know, kind of theories we have about the American dream and our ability to exceed. And yet when you talk to people, when we go out and we speak to communities, even with the fantastic employment numbers we have, that is not what it feels like for a lot of people in our district, in our country. Um, and so I think in large part, the community development function at the Fed has also now started to really think about the power of bringing in those community perspectives. Research is backwards looking. Um, but the things we hear from our communities and our stakeholders tell us a lot more about the actual pulse of what's happening in our economy. Um, and my work is really, it's probably the most exciting part, which is to help think about how are communities coming together to foster local solutions. And I, I, I think it's exciting. <laughs> to, that local to fix, or foster? Foster. Okay. To, fix, to fix okay. things, Felix. To, to fix, fix things. things. She wants to fix things. Fixing things. Yeah. Um, so now we know why we're here. Um, let's talk about how, let's be as precise as we can in what we're talking about. Raghu, how do you define community, this thing that we're going to improve? Great point, because, uh, you know, different people have different visions of what a community means. I, I focus uh, in my book primarily on the proximate community, and at least one sort of very senior economist refused to talk to me anymore because he thought uh, community was all virtual today and, and, and a real proximate community was meaningless. Who was it? Uh, <laughs> nameless. <laughs> very, very prominent economist. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, the, the, the broader point is, is that people have different views. And, and it seems to me that, you know, again, uh, Shetty's work, but, but everything we know is that the community is the proximate community, your neighborhood, your municipality, uh, including perhaps elements of local government there, are really what you encounter in everyday life. It's where you get the whole feeling. Uh, now, that's not jargon. It's, it's more in, in, you have social contracts, you have, you have uh, rights that you expect from the government, you have commercial contracts with your insurance company. What I believe community does is it fills in the holes left by the, all those. If you have a long recession, you run out of unemployment insurance, the government no longer pays you, but you can still rely on your community to support you. You still have food banks set up by the community 
to support families in need. That's an example of where the proximate community works, which, you know, yes, there are, you know, internet sort of raise, raise money, but usually you have to have a very sympathetic face and a very photogenic uh, family to get money there. So, you know, we would, we would never think about it that way explicitly, but it's what you're talking about is you have a contract with the government, you have a contract with companies that you buy things from. Um, you also have an implicit contract, don't you ding? You have an implicit contract with people you know. Yes. Who are there to help you in case all those other contracts are no longer valid. They don't have any meaning. Right. And the beauty of that is uh, it comes from your belonging mm. and not from yeah. your necessarily having built up a reservoir of, uh, of goodwill. So it's, it's not a formal, you give me 20 favors and I give you back 20 favors. The beauty of friendship and community is we don't keep count except for the real free riders. Uh, we keep counting. <laughs> keep count of them. Ashley, so how, how, answer the same question. How do, you, how do you define it? So, I mean, I think the easiest way we often approach this is to talk about place, right? And I think there are a lot of studies that have come out recently that show that place matters. Uh, Raj Chetty is, is one of the economists who's looked at this. Um, but we're seeing this place matters in terms of job access. It matters in terms of transportation. It matters in terms of... Uh, the kinds of jobs that are available in a local economy. Um, so we often walk in thinking about place also because we can measure place, right? Um, but one of the things we have learned when we walk in thinking about place is that people in those places think of themselves and their communities maybe differently than we would from an external factor define them. And so I think something we've learned as important in community is also understanding how people define themselves. Oftentimes it's not the lines of a municipality. Right? And this is one of the things I really love about being at the Federal Reserve Bank is I get to look at things in a regional way. Um, so we may say, okay, this is where this MSA ends. Yes, that's jargon. Um, <laughs> and you know, this is where this city or it's county line begins. municipal statistical area? Yes. Uh, right? Very impressed. Um, but when we, you know, and that's how we can collect the data on it, right? But when we talk to communities, the, the things, the attributes that they share and the problems that they're trying to solve for often exist across those lines. And one of the things that's been exciting for me is, is looking at how do we work in a way that might be regional or, or maybe in another really dense MSA like New York City, the community defines itself by the neighborhood. Right. And so I think there's also outside of just place, there are ways that we identify and share similar both economic attributes and, and other attributes to people within our community. Raghu, um, communities can be exclusive, too. So a church is a beautiful community, but it can be exclusive. Uh, you know, racial covenants in uh, community contracts uh, were, you know, the idea that you could keep certain races out of your community and that was built into your mortgage um, have been incredibly destructive force in America. Mm. But they created community. Yeah. So uh, when we're talking about how people define themselves, right. uh, where do you draw the limits yeah. on that? No, uh, it is an important issue. And uh, one of the problems with, uh, with communities historically is they've been defined by who's excluded. Uh, and that, that implies who's included. And, and you see that uh, also with some of these uh, populist nationalist uh, movements, which are ethnically or, or racially based, uh, they have to have an enemy. Uh, and and the enemy defines the other and therefore defines who's in. Uh, and that's problematic. Uh, and, and my sense is uh, you don't need that in order to have reason to cherish one another. And so I would argue that going forward in the community of tomorrow, uh, we need to find reasons to be together 
and to include as many, uh, recognizing that the more diverse the people included, of course, the potentially weaker the, the, the strands will be, but not use exclusion as a method of creating these bonds, but rather use a whole variety of other things, that is opportunities to interact, for example, opportunities to work with one another as the way to create the community. Ashley, how do, you, how do you deal with that? When you go out into the community, you're going to find communities that define themselves in different ways, and some of those definitions might be uncomfortable. So when you're actually trying to do you know, the work of the world, how do you manage that? Yeah, I actually think this is a fantastic point. Um, we have been talking a lot about, you know, here are some of these terms, right? Inclusive economic development. What does that mean? Equitable development. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. my, my jargon bell. I'm looking at you for it now. <laughs> um, and I think there is uh, a sort of coming to terms right now, uh, both in philanthropic institutions and in government institutions, that's understanding that there are actual added values when we are working in ways that are inclusive. And I'm happy to give some examples of, of some of the communities we've seen that have actually said, yes, we are going to invest in all of us. And that means you're leveraging your local talents, your local businesses, and your local resources. And I think one of the concerns when, when you exclude certain people is that you are essentially excluding human capital and business capital. Um, capital. Um, no, human capital. That's human important. Capital. Raga, we define like human capital because we're going to talk about this. <laughs> and social capital as well, right? These, yes. these are words yes. we hear a lot and they, they, they have to have a meaning. So what's the meaning? So human capital would be skills, education, all the stuff that make you a better, more capable worker, for example. And uh, social capital is the ties with others so that you can bring people together, you can work with it, them, you can trust them. Uh, all the stuff that makes transactions between people easier. So now we're at the point where we've define what a community is. Uh, we know what to be wary of. Sometimes the communities can define themselves in uncomfortable ways. Um, what is the work, Ashley? Like you go out and do this, right? So now we're going to talk about solutions. Yes, my um, favorite topic. Uh, and, and the impression that I get from talking to you is that it's just a lot of hard work. Yeah, I, that's pretty accurate. You know, I think uh, in the space of community development, and I think really across the country, we really want like a plug and play, right? Like I want to be able to say, okay, this city is doing this perfectly. Let me pick up all the things that they did, plant this in my city, and it will work here. And what we're learning aside from that place matters, the people in the place that drive that work are really, really essential. Um, so the work I do at the Economic Growth and Mobility Project, we call a research in action lab. That's our term for saying, hey, we have this great research. We're going to bring it into the community and work with the community to think about innovative solutions. And one of the first things we learned was it just isn't easy. You can't do it in one meeting. You can't do it in one paper that you publish. It really is a process, and that process is really dependent on who is in the community and what resources are there. Give the example that you told me about earlier of uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, yeah. right? So this is not a way you would have traditionally defined a community, but you went in there and figured things out. Right. So northeastern Pennsylvania, uh, it actually started with, since we talked about CRA earlier, uh, a series of roundtables we were having about CRA. And one of the things, the, the Community, community Reinvestment, Reinvestment Act, Act. Um, one of the things that came out of that conversation in Northeast Pennsylvania was the lack of access to transportation. And this came out everywhere. It came out from the business sector, from financial institutions, from nonprofits serving workers who were looking for jobs. Um, and so we started to take this conversation and say, well, what does it mean for this community 
to foster some solutions around equitable transit. Um, and and really, I will say so. Equitable, equitable transit. Equitable being, and, and this was actually really important, not just equal, like does every person have access? Can I get to the bus stop? But do the people who are most likely to be transit dependent, so low-income workers, workers who might be in jobs that are, are paying a lower wage, do they have access to the kind of jobs that provide them that economic mobility? And those are often your users of, of public transit. Okay, economic mobility. Uh, <laughs> we, but we defined we, we it. We defined it already. Um, Felix, see me after class. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, in the introduction to this podcast, when it goes live, I'm going to have to explain who Felix is, this like that we're, that we're talking to in the audience. But OK, continue. So what was really exciting about Northeast Pennsylvania is the work we ended up doing really crossed a lot of these lines. Um, it was three different cities. So Scranton, Wilkes-Barre and Hazleton, two counties, three uh, municipal uh, transportation agencies, a series of nonprofits, three different chambers. And they all got together and formed essentially a, a council, is what they initially called it. It was a great wonky name, the Northeast Pennsylvania Equitable Transit Planning Council. <laughs> they have since rebranded and called themselves NEPA Moves, which we think is, is a lot catchier, uh, because every life has a destination. Um, right? That's, that's nice. Um, so their real focus has been, how do we work across all of these different institutions? Uh, and they've gotten some amazing work done in large part because they're working collaboratively. Uh, and I think that to me has been really exciting. Their, their anchor institution of uh, the healthcare hospital system recognized that this was not only a problem for people who were needing to get to work, but also for people getting to healthcare. Uh, and they actually launched a pilot program providing free rides through a ride share. And as a part of this council and in partnership with it, have started to explore some other ways to get people to what are often these industrial parks that exist outside of the urban core and offer pretty good paying jobs if you can get to them. Um, and so that's been a really interesting project we've, we've gotten to take part of, but it, it did take about two years that we were doing this work. And it took some really, really amazing, dedicated community champions who were there in the community, who were trusted by the community. And I think you brought this up in your book when you talk about, uh, is it Pilsen, Pilsen, outside of Chicago? This is a thing we see everywhere. Like We can't do it alone as the Federal Reserve Bank. Finding those people and tapping into them and really giving them the space to lead them the work is important. Well, Ruggie, let me, you know, this example, there's a beautiful example in his book about uh, a community uh, very similar in Chicago where one person, a community champion that we're talking about, just did a ton of work to improve things. When I read that example, my question was, where was the city council member? Right. What, what, what is it? Is Chicago, surely somebody is responsible for doing these things in that part of Chicago. So what is broken about local government that they're unable to solve these problems that we traditionally look to government to solve? Right. Well, uh, first, a uh, couple of things that, you know, the problem of community development seems to me very much like the problem of country development. Uh, we sort of know countries that have developed, but we can't take that recipe and put it elsewhere. It's it doesn't it doesn't compute. Right. Uh, each country has to figure out how to go. I think my most uh, embarrassing moment at the fund was when I wrote a paper saying, you know, just documenting the fact that aid doesn't seem to have any effect on growth. That you throw tons of money at a country and doesn't seem to have an impact on growth. The FT came out with a headline oh, the no. next day just before the Glen Eagles summit, saying IMF says aid doesn't work. Uh, that, that nearly cost my job. I had to go to the managing director. There were 17 phone calls from ministers 
of uh, a number of aid receiving countries saying, what are you talking about? Uh, it was- uh, Chris Charles I, is here, did you write that? Yeah. <laughs> 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 It, it, it was actually Andrew Ball who wrote the story, but some <laughs> editor that he blamed for writing the headline. Which, uh, 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 the story was great. It was the, but anyway, the, the, the broader point is we don't have a recipe for, for growth for communities. Uh, and, and really the question is how do communities pick up? And, and this is where the problem with, with, uh, with the local government may be that they've run out of ideas. And that's part of the reason that it's, it's, it's dying you need somebody, sometimes it's local government, but sometimes it's an outside champion. Uh, in this case, it was a bunch of churches in Pilsen that came together uh, when they found a body outside the church. Uh, and the church pastor basically said, look, who's going to take responsibility? A bunch of young men in the community came together and said, okay, we're going to get the churches together. We're going to do something about this. They looked for somebody to run the organization. Nobody came. Ultimately, one of the young men stood up and said, I'll do it. He's still there 27 years later as the director of the project. But it, it's amazing how much community action can do both in finding the problems as well as solving it. And one of the important things is it's actually, I think, in some ways easier for a community in a developed country to uh, draw itself up and out rather than a poor country because a poor country is less loosely tied to the global economy the community is in the country. In this case, it was near Chicago. So what they had to really figure out was how to build up the ties to the rest of Chicago and bring business in. The first thing they realized was they had to bring violence down. If with that level of violence, nobody was going to come in. So the community worked on closing down the bars where all the riffraff congregated first. <laughs> uh, and Sorry, <laughs> uh, no reference to context. Uh, and then they, they worked to uh, crowd out the crime, literally. If they saw a, a, a crime scene, they reported, many of them reported to the police, but then came out also. So r many reporting was a way of preventing the gangs from tracing back who, who snitched, and coming out was a way of preventing those guys from doing anything else. And they brought cr crime down, then business started coming in. So the connectivity in this case was not transport, Right. but was clearing the, the fog that surrounded the community and prevented uh, business. And it wasn't the city of, it wasn't the, excuse me, it wasn't the city of Chicago. Wow. <laughs> um, so the city of Chicago did not come up with a solution and the Chicago PD didn't come up with a solution. Yeah, but the, the, the good thing was they contributed. And I, I, again, I think as far as international aid goes, it can help when there's, a, there's somebody driving a solution. I, I want to talk about this idea um, so Cory Booker, a uh, senator from New Jersey, uh, really championed an idea he called Opportunity Zones. I'll get there. Um, so it's it's in uh, the tax bill that passed in late 2017. And the idea is you can get a a massive tax break uh, on um, on any capital gains uh, profits that you have from investments. Um, come on. <laughs> um, I see a bunch of ties. There are investors in this audience. Um, if you take that profit 
and put it into an investment in what has been defined as an opportunity zones. Now, an opportunity zone is basically a poor area that the state uh, has defined as worthy of investment, right? But what I think is interesting about what you're saying uh, is that Cory Booker, when he talks about this idea, he literally uses the language that you're using about development aid to other countries. He says there are undeveloped markets in America, and we need to find them, and we need to make sure they get investment. And I know you didn't say this, but I heard the FT report that aid doesn't work. <laughs> so, well, I mean, I, I sympathize with that that idea that it doesn't work because, mm -hmm. I mean, for the amount of money that's poured in, mm -hmm. the the effects are minuscule, right? So, what's going wrong? But we're not just talking about aid. What yeah. I think is interesting is we're talking about investment. And yeah. investment in underdeveloped countries yeah. has also had catastrophic consequences. Right. So we're talking about revisiting some of that right. internally inside the United States. Well, so so think of the investment that every mayor would kill for, right? And that would be the Amazon investment, right? $150,000 jobs, 25,000 of them coming into your, into your municipality. And yet they turned it down. Right. And these weren't I mean, politicians have their have the years to the ground. Uh, clearly, they were hearing some people say this is not as great as it's meant to be. And, and so we need to step back a second and think, well, if the opportunity zone idea succeeded, this would be the dream outcome. Amazon coming into your neighborhood with so many jobs. And yet the other side is not happy now. Maybe they were misinformed. That's what the high and mighty in New York think. They took out a full page ad saying we're sorry to Amazon and said, please come back. <laughs> but, but, but really, really, uh, I mean, I think we are underestimating the community itself. I mean, many of them uh, may well have thought that we're not necessarily going to be better off by this. Uh, certainly local business loved it. But think about the person who would see rents go up but know that they had absolutely no chance of getting one of those jobs. Well, maybe I might work in a shop, but not clear. And rents are going to go up more than I'm going to get paid. I mean, I can understand logic like that. It seems to me at the very least, a broader dialogue with the community was warranted to assuage some of these concerns. And it's not clear to me it would have cost that much. But, but clearly that didn't happen. But it also means that there's something broken in the way we measure success which is that mayors are used to measuring success by saying, I brought in so many thousand jobs during my tenure, right? This is a well-known measure, right? Or you can, you can get the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and say, look, we've got lower unemployment rates in this city uh, than when we started and lower than surrounding cities, right? So these are measurements that mayors are used to using. Is there a measurement that we could use where a mayor or a community leader could, at the end of their tenure, say, look, I improved community by this much? I mean, I, I will say that it is one of the things that is hardest about the, the community development work that we're talking about is some of these things that we're building, like building a community's capacity is a really difficult thing to find a number for. A lot of what we talk about is how do you build community trust? Right. So a lot of the partnerships we're working on, you're bringing the private sector and the public sector together in ways and in places that maybe there was some distrust for, for potentially for good reasons. Right. And now we're building trust. How do I measure that I built trust? Um, I think this is a major challenge in the community development space. I don't think we shouldn't try to measure. Um, and I do think that, you know, the, the HQ2 question and the Opportunity Zone question, they both bring together this question of like, what does inclusive economic development look like? What do we mean by that? And I think 
we've, you know, we have a few things we hear from cities or, you know, we want local jobs. We want you to hire local people. We want you to invest in local workers. We want investments in local housing. And so there's a lot of intersectionality here too. It's not just one thing intersectionality, different uh, sectors that are often siloed, which is very true, right? Housing is often one conversation over here. Workforce development is another conversation over here. I think what we're learning from these conversations is that these things are really connected. And if we aren't starting with the conversation about inclusion, we aren't getting to it as an afterthought. Right. I mean, in general, I, I think the, the word we often bandy around, the jargon, is integrated development, right? right. We're going to work on all these pieces. Now, in practice, uh, you know, what this means when the World Bank or uh, you know, some multilateral organization does it is a document this thick on how we're going to move all these pieces. But it's, it's an outside document. It's not driven by the, inter, the people who actually are going to be responsible for carrying it out. And there's no sense of engagement. So this is why I think many of us are saying if it comes from within and if they, you know, it doesn't matter that not be integrated initially. They do it by trial and error. They move a little bit here. They find that this also needs moving. They move a little bit there. Yes, it needs all the relevant people in the community to come together. But if they see success, they do come together. The business leaders come together with the education leaders, with the local government, and they, they start building on it. But I think, I think it, you can't wait for that thousand page document, but you do need movement on all these fronts. Um, Raghu, I'm going to give you the last question. Um, when I was reading the book, I kept on thinking the stuff that we're talking about here doesn't map onto any existing party structure in America. And maybe, oh, come on. And maybe that's great. Maybe it's great that you don't that you can't uh, sort of, you know, be a Democrat and pick up this book and say, yeah, that's what I've been talking about the whole time. You can't be a Republican, pick it up and say, yeah, this is definitely what we should be doing. I think maybe that's a positive thing. But what I wonder is um, it's language that we're not used to using. We have a language of liberty in America, right? And the liberty is centered in the person, right? And so anything that I can do to increase my liberty is a good thing. Those are things that I vote for. And if you can talk about it in that way, then that's something that I will find appealing. This is not about personal liberty. It's about something else. So how do you go out to an American voter as a Republican or a Democrat or, or in any way, any kind of pol local politician and say, look, vote for community. And I feel like when I say the word community, I've already lost the public because they don't think this way. How do you, how do you turn that into a message? Well, it is interesting. I mean, uh, if you want to hate, there's enough to hate in the book from whichever side you are, right? Uh, if you're if you're on the left, the idea that there's no grand government program here that I'm 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 pushing for, and, and I think it's a lot about local initiative. Uh, that's that's to hate. And if uh, you're from the right, I I advocate universal healthcare wherever it's provided. And, and you've actually you've heard from people about this. This is not oh, yeah. hypothetical. Oh yeah. oh yeah. I mean, interestingly, so far, if I sort of uh, balance the hate versus the the love, I think I get more love from the right, mm -hmm. uh, a little more hate from the left. But I think that can change. So it just depends on which audience you're talking to. But but really, I, I think ultimately, I mean, you've seen some of the scare words from Ray Dalio and people like that who are in pretty senior positions and uh, are, are um, opining about the possibility this of is revolution. A, this is a very famous uh, uh, hedge fund, hedge fund uh, director who... Yeah, who has the year of uh, many people in power, and, and he certainly is. But I, I really think that what we are seeing is the death of opportunity for too many people in the industrial world, not just in the US, but, but in other parts. I mean, we have, uh, and it's very varied, right? Washington, New York, San Francisco doing wonderfully well and the heartland is dead. But you can make the same point about uh, London versus the rest of England, 
Paris, uh, Lyon versus the rest of France. I mean, the, the heartland in many industrial countries is, is, is dying out. I think we need to think about how to revive. Not everybody will move to the cities. You have to have jargon place-based growth. One of the interesting graphs uh, in the IMF, uh, this uh, World Economic Outlook, is how much the top 10% of communities have done since the global financial crisis and how badly the worst hit have done. And those haven't really recovered at all. In fact, have gone down. And you know maybe this is true of every period, but it certainly seems to be true of this period. So I, I would say this is very important if we want to preserve our democracy, if we want to preserve our capitalism, if we want to preserve much of what brought us here. And the alternatives, you know, uh, I've talked about some alternatives in the book, but they could be quite terrible. Uh, they're excited about the caps. They're excited about what you're saying uh, downstairs. Uh, um, uh, Raghun Rajan, thank you so much. Ashley Putnam, thank you both so much. Uh, thank you to Jillian for sort of inspiring and hosting this event. Thank you to Cardiff Garcia and everybody else at NPR for being a part of it. Thank you for Penn Social for providing such an amazing uh, uh, location. Uh, and also, uh, thank you. You should all know that um, everything that didn't happen right here on the table is thanks to Louise McKinley, who's sitting over there, uh, who, who did all the rest of it. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Road Centre for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keane from the Financial Times. Please email us at alphachat at ft.com for any reason at all, related to the podcast, obviously. Thanks again to Penn Social, our guests, our bell ringers, and our DC listeners who came out for the show. For my part, I think everyone should carry a jargon bell at all times. Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.